Jacksonville, because I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, our house had a really big yard. It was enormous. And because there were a lot of plants in that yard, my dad would wake us up early on Saturday mornings, every so often to get some yard work done. Of course, he would say something like carpe deum, seize the day, and then we would get up and work in the 90-degree weather with 100% humidity. Fun time. <clears throat> the main piece of yard work that he would have us do was pull weeds. Now, I'm sure a number of you here know how to pull weeds. But here's a question. What's the best way to pull a weed? In other words, are you just trying to pull the weeds so that the top part, the part that you can see, comes out? No. Yeah, you've got to grab it by the root, right? If you try to pull it so that the top of it comes up and the roots remain, the weed will return even stronger than before. You have to pull the roots out. Otherwise, you will have accomplished nothing. So bitterness is just like a weed. We have to kill it by the roots in our hearts. Otherwise, it will return stronger than before. Now, what is bitterness? Any ideas? Anything. Elias? Okay. Good. Anything else? Or any additions to that? Okay. I like the idea of steeping, like tea. For those of you who drink tea, you put tea, uh, the tea leaves into some hot water and steep it so that the actual flavor goes into the water and there you have tea. <clears throat> Now, I've been thinking about a lot about bitterness over the past few years, and as I've studied what my heart and what the Bible has to say about bitterness, I've learned just how easy it is to ignore bitterness in our hearts. So what I want to do today is spend some time explaining what bitterness is and how to fight it with God's word. But first, let's pray for our time this morning. Dear Lord, I pray that I'm able to bring forward the teaching of, the, of your word about bitterness, and Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to the reality of bitterness in our lives, Lord, it's so easy to overlook bitterness, to think that bitterness is something that someone else struggles with, or something that other people might deal with, but we don't deal with it ourselves, and in reality, bitterness is so, so, so common in all of our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts to the truth of your word, <clears throat> and for those of us here who are believers, I pray that we help to you help us to grow to become more like you. And for those of us here who are not Christians, Lord, I pray that you open their hearts to the gospel and the reality of their need for you. In your name, amen. So, if you look on your outline, I've included a definition of bitterness. <clears throat> bitterness is a sinful heart attitude towards someone because of what that other person did or did not do in the past that affects the way that you interact with that person. Let me repeat that. Bitterness is a sinful heart attitude towards someone because of what that person did or did not do in the past that affects the way that you interact with that person. And bitterness is often really hard to identify because it's not as easily visible and it often involves other sins. For example, if I'm bitter at Garrison for something that Garrison has done to me, then I might show that in anger. I might just yell at him. I could also show that in envy. I could want something that he has because I don't think he deserves it. Or I could gossip about him. I could talk badly about him behind his back. Those are just a few examples. But at the end of the day, the root of all of those sins is that I'm sinfully holding something against Garrison. I'm bitter towards Garrison. Now, the Bible shows two different situations where bitterness can take hold in a person's life. And I want to tackle each in turn, because each one needs to be dealt with differently. And it's going to be a lot of Bible verses we're going to go through today, so for those of you who used to do sword drills, kind of keep your you know, fingers ready to flip through the Bible. The first situation where bitterness can take hold is right there on your handout. And it's a sinful response to God-ordained trials. A sinful response to God-ordained trials. What does God-ordained mean? Ryan. Something God has given 
Something God has given you? Jonathan? Hmm? Okay. Any other right? Okay, like in Allah, okay. Anything else? Any other ideas? Yes. What? Allowed? Good. Elias, you had your hand up. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it's a big word, and it's a very weird word. We don't often use that much, right? You don't often hear someone saying, well, I've ordained this, or this person's ordained that. I mean, the only time you ever hear that is whenever it's used to pastors that they've been ordained, which is, there's a number of different definitions involved. But for our purposes, the Oxford Dictionary defines ordain as the process of ordering or decreeing something. So when we say God ordained, we are leaning into the understanding of God's sovereignty, that he is in control of everything. To put it simply, God allows us to go through trials. And because of our sinful hearts, we are often tempted to become bitter at God because he allows us to go through those trials. And today we're going to look at two examples of biblical people who dealt with bitterness toward God in two different ways. And the first example is on your outline, and it's a bad example. And that's Naomi from the book of Ruth. So the bad example, Naomi. Turn to Ruth chapter 1. So it's in your Old Testament. It's right after the book of Judges and right before 1 Samuel. If you've hit Psalms or any of the prophets, you've gone too far. Now to give you some context on the book of Ruth, the Israelites have entered the promised land. However, Judges shows us how disobedient Israel is. There's rampant violence, sexual immorality, and the last verse of Judges reads this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone's moral decisions came from their personal opinion rather than God's word. And this is the dark background that we get right before Ruth. Now look at Ruth chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Ruth, we're introduced to Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They have two sons, and they decide to leave Israel because of a famine that occurs. Now, the Old Testament was clear that the Israelites were to stay in the land of Israel, as it was God's gift to them. And right here, we have an Israelite couple who, one, doesn't care about God's gift, and two, is disobeying God. So they leave Israel with their two sons, and they go to the nearby pagan land of Moab, which was one of Israel's enemies, and then something horrible happens. In verse 3, Elimelech dies, Naomi's husband. So what do Naomi and her sons do? They go back, do they go back to Israel and uh, repent of their sin of abandoning Israel? No. They stay in Moab. In fact, her sons marry women from Moab, which was against God's law, and then her sons die. So here's Naomi. She's alone with, the, with her daughters-in-law, the wives of her sons, one of which is Ruth, and all the rest of her family is dead. So she finally decides to return to Israel. Look at verse 7. We're going to read through verse 13. So she, that's Naomi, departed from the place where she was and her two two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Their husbands are dead, but anyway. Then she kissed them, And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, which she doesn't, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So let me just remind you, Naomi's husband has died. Ruth's husband has died. The other daughter-in-law, Orpah's husband has died. All of their husbands are dead. And Naomi says, hey, it's a lot worse for me. You guys don't understand. You can just hear the hopelessness in Naomi's words, the complaining. But it really comes out later in the chapter. One of her daughters-in-law, Orpah, leaves, but Ruth sticks around in an incredible display of faith. And in verse 19, Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Israel. So look at verse 19 of chapter 1. So they, that's Naomi and Ruth, both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
full, but brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Okay, so you might say, so she changed her name. What's the big deal? What is that supposed to mean? Does anybody know what Naomi or Mara means? Haven. Naomi means pleasant, and Mara means bitter. So if you want, look at your Bible at verse 20. For those of you who are wondering how she got that, it, when it says, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. There should be a number next to each of those names. If you look to the side of your Bible and you compare that number with the side on it, you'll see that Naomi means pleasant. Great name. But now she wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. <clears throat> Naomi is so upset, so angry at God, that she is literally trying to change her name to bitter because, quote, the Almighty has afflicted me. There is no repentance here for disobeying God's word earlier. Naomi is bitter at God. What's funny to me is that throughout the rest of the book, no one calls her Mara, not even the author. In fact, it's never brought up again. But what is interesting, even more interesting, is that Naomi's opinion of God changes with her circumstances. Turn to chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. So again, just as a reminder, she's so mad at God. God has dealt so bitterly with me that now my new name is Bitter. Just call me Bitter. That's all I want to be known as. So look at verses 19 through 20. Ruth has come back from getting a lot of food from Boaz, who shows an incredible display of kindness. And at, in verse 19, her mother-in-law, this is Naomi, then said to her, to Ruth, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said the name of the man with whom I worked today is Boaz, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Where'd bitterness go? Where'd the Mara go? Suddenly she went from being called Mara to suddenly stating that the Lord has not withdrawn his kindness. Naomi gets some good news and suddenly she praises God. Here's the issue though. Her opinion of God changes depending on whether she's in blessing or in a trial. In fact, look in chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. This is the end of the book. Boaz has married Ruth in another incredible display of kindness, love, and care and will protect and provide for her and Naomi. God has shown himself faithful and Boaz and Ruth have a son who is the ancestor of David. Ruth, who is a foreign woman, eventually is, is the ancestor of one of the most important men in the Bible. So look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and to you, then seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And again, the neighboring women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now there's a lot of imagery and callback here in these short verses, but what's important for us in this discussion is Naomi's response. Notice she doesn't say anything. She's unusually quiet. In fact, the people who are praising God are the other women. There's no repentance or praise of God from Naomi. Now, I don't know Naomi's heart, right? But it is odd that the author of Judges specifically left out any mention of a response from her, especially since she's responded more than she's ever needed to in the past few chapters. Naomi's opinion of God changed with her circumstances and her heart showed a heart full of bitterness and her response showed a heart full of bitterness against God for allowing her to go through trials even in the end when God has shown himself faithful and blesses her beyond what she thought was able to happen others are praising God and she remains silent Naomi shows that a heart that is bitter towards God because of trials will complain and focus only on your situation and how horrible that situation is it does not turn to God in prayer and it does not try to love others despite the difficult trial. Bottom line, don't be like Naomi. Now let's compare that to our good example, Job. This is on your outline, by the way. Job is our good example. 
turn to the book, book of Job, and Job is located right before Psalms. So chapter 1 and half of chapter 2 depict in Job the horrible situations and trials that God allows Job to go through. Job is a righteous man, literally described as someone who is blameless. However, God allows Satan to take Job through horrific tragedy. As Job is at home one day, four messengers come to tell Job of horrible news. Two of the messengers tell of how different bands of raiders kill his servants and take A third messenger tells of how fire from heaven, literally the fire of God, destroyed more of his livestock and servants. And the final servant tells him that a great wind blew down the house where his children were having a meal, killing every single one of them. In less than a minute, everything that Job had was gone. That's not it. God allows Satan to take Job through physical torment, having him deal horrific, with horrifically painful boils all over his body. Job is reduced to having to pop these boils with broken pot shards while he's sitting in an ash heap. This great man, which Job 1.3 describes as the greatest of all the men in the East, is reduced to nothing. It's so bad that his wife commands him to curse God. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Again, verse 9 of chapter 2. Then his, that's Job, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept, God, accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But that's not it, which is surprising because it just kind of gets a little bit worse. Then Job's three friends, I say that with parentheses because I don't think they're very friendly to him, come and they spend the rest of the book complaining, explaining that righteous people don't deal with these kinds of horrific situations. Therefore, Job must have sinned. Instead of standing next to him and comforting him when he's in this horrible, horrible situation, his friends stand against him and declare him to be a wicked man. Job, throughout the book, refutes their words, but also asks to know why these horrible things are happening. And Job is, is hurting. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, Job says this. And this is in the middle of one of his, one of his long statements trying to prove that he is not a wicked man like he is being accused of. Again, chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Job is struggling. He doesn't understand why God would allow him to go through this horrible situation if he has tried to honor the Lord. And he continues to demand an answer. Here's the thing, he gets one. Chapter 38 through 41 consists of God answering Job face to face. God shows his power in the things that he has done and demands Job to show why Job thinks that he knows better than God. And Job responds twice. Once in chapter 40 and then again in chapter 42. So in chapter 40 verses 1 through, f 1 through 5, this is at the end of a series of statements by God demanding Job show him why Job thinks he knows better than God and showing God's awesome power. Verse 1 of chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault fighter contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. In other words, speak, Job. Come on, you have such big things to say and if you're going up against God. What do you have to say for yourself? Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant, what can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. In other words, I'm just going to shut up now. I, I said too much. And then look again in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Again, God then re responds, again, shows his awesome power. And then chapter 42, starting in verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. 
Job repents of his doubt in the Lord. You see, he could have remained bitter and hold fast to his pain. His children are still dead. Everything he has is still gone. He still has the boils. But he melts before God's sovereign wisdom and seeks the Lord's forgiveness. He accepts God's sovereignty and not only accepts and repents, asks that God helps him to grow spiritually in verse 4. Here now when I will speak, I will ask you and you instruct me. I don't know if I could do that, in all honesty. But look at God's response. Verse 7 through 9 of chapter 42. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Aliphaz the Temanite, this is one of the three friends who, who went up against Job. My wrath is kindled against you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So my servant Job. That's how he refers to him to the rest of the, this section. Now therefore take for yourself, he's talking to his three friends, seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that it may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 9, the three of them do that. They went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job. There's just a little bit more of the story as God blesses Job with riches and more children. But here's the point, guys, because we often look at that and go, all right, everything's fixed in, hurrah. But Job could have remained bitter. His children are still dead, Right? They didn't come back to life. But when confronted with God's sovereignty and power, he chose not to allow himself to be bitter. He chose to trust in the Lord who is sovereign and faithful. So what's our job? You're going to go through trials. You're going to go through hard times. How should we respond to God-ordained trials when they come? And that's the next part of your outline. Our response. Trust that our God is faithful and sovereign and that our trials are not meaningless. Trust that our God is faithful and sovereign, and that our trials are not meaningless. Let me just read through these next three passages. And the first one you've heard many times, Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But what good, you might say? What good could possibly come from these horrific trials that I'm going through? What if I never see the result? I was just thinking about this as I was listening to Mike's, uh, Mike's discussion on Wednesday night when he was talking about having to drive all the way to Tempe and even saying, I really don't know <laughs> what good has necessarily come of it except that I've grown, right? There was no shining light in the sky. Oh, this is the exact reason why I sent you down to Tempe every day for this long time, as hard as that was. So what if you never see the result? What if you never see some huge good that comes out of your trial? That's where James 1, 2 through 4 comes in. And it reads, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1 echoes this understanding in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, when it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, you have, you're saved. If you're a Christian, you're saved. God protects you. You're not gonna, there's not going to be a situation where you lose your salvation. Look how amazing this is. And then verse 6, And this you greatly rejoice, in the salvation that you have, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, And though you have not seen him, in other words, Christ, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Guys, the trials we go through refine us. They shape and mold us into God's image by forcing us through terrible circumstances to rely only on the Lord. That's the goal. That's the good. Other good things might come from your trials, but one of the greatest goods is growing you to become more like Christ. 
God will refine you through trials, just like gold is purified in the hottest flames. That's what 1 Peter 1 is referencing. And in the end, you will stand before God, purified and perfect in glory because of what he's done through salvation that only he offers. There is a point to trials. And we can fight off bitterness by trusting that our God is faithful and sovereign and that our trials are not meaningless. That's the first situation, our response to God in trials. But there is a second situation where bitterness can take hold in a person's life, and that is number two on your outline, and that's a sinful response to other people's behavior or sin. A sinful response to other people's behavior or sin. See, guys, I used to think that bitterness only applies when you can't talk to someone, when you're so angry at that person that you can't even communicate with them because of that bitterness. But bitterness is so much trickier than that and is rarely that extreme. Bitterness towards others can be difficult to identify because it often does involve other sins, like I talked about earlier. You could respond in anger to someone out of a heart full of bitterness. For example, let's say we're cleaning up after a game on Wednesday night, and I say, Tristan, help me pick up these chairs. Tristan's talking to Mr. Plummer and doesn't even hear me, but I think he's ignoring me. Okay. Now I can respond in bitterness and think about that over and over and over again. I start thinking, you know, I wake up in the night and start thinking about it. Why didn't Tristan listen to me? He really didn't mean, that was really mean to ignore me like that. What a rude guy. And I have those thoughts all night long and throughout the rest of the week. Then on Sunday, there's a group of guys talking about how many chairs they can lift, because that's what we often do, right, guys? We talk about how strong we are, how many chairs we can lift. And Tristan, he's a really strong guy. So he tells everyone how he can lift eight chairs. And I'm listening, and I'm bitter, because I still think he's ignoring, he ignored me on Wednesday night. So instead of responding correctly and doing with my heart, I respond in anger and yell out of nowhere something like, well, if you're so strong, you should have helped me clean up those chairs on Wednesday night. I'm angry in that moment. But that anger is coming from a heart of bitterness. Tristan hasn't done anything wrong. He didn't even hear me. While I'm responding in anger, the real issue is bitterness in my heart. Even though bitterness is often difficult to determine, there are a few ways that bitterness is shown in your life. And these are what are known as evidences of bitterness. These evidences will help you identify bitterness in your heart. And the most common evidence that you are bitter is in your thoughts. This isn't on your outline, by the way. So don't worry, you're not missing a point. The most common evidence that you're bitter is in your thoughts. If you're thinking about something hours or even days after it has happened, there is a likelihood that you are starting to become bitter. That's the first and foremost aspect. But when you think about someone, do you think about them in a kind, loving way, or do you think about only their sins or failures? Do you plan on how you can get even with them or even hurt them? Bitterness primarily shows itself in our thoughts, and if you are holding a past event against someone, you are most likely struggling with bitterness towards that person. But there's another way that bitterness comes out, and that is in the way that you talk about someone. And this is so, we, our hearts are so sinful, and I've done this so many times where I'll make it seem like the way I talk about someone is really good, like I'm just talking about their spiritual condition, like I love them, when in my heart I'm bitter towards them. When you talk about your siblings or parents to someone else, are you kind in the way that you speak, or are you tearing them down or just highlighting their issues? Acting as if, hey, I mean, I love my parents, but look at these things I have to deal with. If you are bitter towards someone, you will want other people to approve the sinful feeling that you have towards that person, and the result is that you will only talk about their bad things. When someone comes to me and the only thing they say is, hey, my sibling does this, they're angry all the time, they're annoying, they don't listen to me, they don't listen to mom, that's usually a really good example of bitterness in your heart. The third evidence of bitterness is the way that you speak or act towards that person. Are you angry whenever they are around? even if they haven't done anything? Are you easily impatient towards that person? Do you do your best to ignore that person? Do you try to boss them around or annoy them? The way that you speak or act towards someone often shows if you are bitter towards that person. Now, those are evidences of bitterness. What's the real issue? Why are we bitter towards other people? Any ideas? Why are we bitter? Jonathan? Sinful nature, nature? okay. Let's get a bit more deep than that. Why are we bitter? What's the main problem? Elias. A lack of humility. Lack of humility, okay. Jonathan? We want what we want and we don't care about others. We want what we want and we don't care about others, okay. 
Any other ideas? Haven? What? Pride. Okay. You're going to say pride too? Okay. Any other ideas? Oh, yes. We might want to get them in trouble. We can't forgive. That's, and, and those others will come into play, but that's what, that's what it is. That's the, that's the real issue, and that's actually on your outline. The next part. The real issue is a lack of forgiveness. We are not forgiving. A lack of forgiveness. Turn to Ephesians 4, verses 31 through 32. Again, Ephesians 4, verses 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Verse 31 lists the sins to put away and it includes bitterness. Verse 32 lists the Christ-honoring characteristics including forgiving others. Now turn to Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Like I said, we're going through a lot of verses today. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. It's just a few books to your right. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. While it does not specifically reference bitterness, verse uh, 32 lists the Christ... Oh, no, sorry. While it does not specifically reference bitterness, notice what we are to do when someone sins. We are called to do two things, and what are they? Look at, look at your Bible. It's in verse 13. What are we to do when someone sins against us? Two things. Yes. Bear with one another and forgive each other. This applies to anyone. Notice, whoever has a complaint against anyone. So if you have an issue with anybody, you're to do two things. Not only to forgive other people, but to bear, up, bear with them despite their sins. Because unity, in verse 14, is so important to the Lord. The perfect bond of unity. Now here's the real question. Whose example are we to follow in the battle against bitterness based on this passage? Whose example are we following? Someone else besides the two front rows here. Because you guys have been really helpful. Someone else besides... <laughs> I actually, you haven't said anything, Joshua. Go ahead. Job. Job, okay. In this passage, though. The Lord. Yeah, exactly. God forgave us. That's what it says. Right there. In verse 13, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Yes, Job is a great example, but right here it's the Lord. God forgave us. If you're a Christian, it is because God sent his only son to live on this earth and to die on the cross for us. Jesus did nothing wrong, and he on his own died for us. And we are called to have that same level of forgiveness. Guys, forgiving others is hard. This is really, really, really difficult. In all honesty, this is something I struggle with. This is something your leaders struggle with. I don't know of a single person who has said, in all seriousness, man, forgiving others is so easy. It's the easiest thing in the world. I asked our pastor, you guys might know him, Pastor Scott Christmas, for a definition of forgiveness. And he defined forgiveness as, he said that to forgive another person is to release that person from whatever debt they owe you. When most sins occur, the damage or debt is emotional. Might be financial, right? But most, hopefully it's not that much. Uh, mostly it's emotional damage. You hurt me, and now you have this emotional debt to me. I have something against you. To forgive someone is to release that debt, to not have something against the other person. Now this does not mean that you do not trust the other person to trust someone is to have a firm belief in that person's reliability. And trust does not require that the other person earns it back. There's a difference between forgiving someone and trusting someone. Forgiveness is to be given to everybody. You're supposed to forgive everyone. You can't always trust everyone. I'll give you an example. If your parents were to catch you looking at something inappropriate on your computer, there would be consequences, right? You would probably lose access to that computer for a certain period of time. 
Now, hopefully your parents would forgive you and not hold the sin against you, and they would seek to reconcile the relationship that has been damaged because of your sin. That's forgiveness. However, that does not mean they will not trust you right away. You've shown yourself to be untrustworthy. So that computer restriction will not just go away just because you ask for forgiveness, right? This is what I thought when I was younger. If I ask for forgiveness, that's, that, that consequence is just gone, right? That's what forgiveness means, that you are not going to have any consequences. There's no consequences when you ask for forgiveness. That's not true. So that in this situation, that computer restriction would not just go away. But forgiveness does allow the relationship between you and your parents to be restored. When you have an issue with someone, forgiving that person allows your relationship to be restored despite what they have done. does not mean that you trust them. God wants unity, and forgiveness is the tool to accomplishing that. So, if someone sins against you, you cannot hold that against them and be bitter. To be bitter towards someone is to make it so that reconciliation is extremely difficult or even impossible. But the Bible says that you must forgive, and you must forgive quickly. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. God is very clear about bitterness. It cannot be allowed to spring up because it will not cause trouble. You need to root it out just like the roots of the weeds we talked about earlier. I want you to just take a moment. Stop writing. Stop taking notes. Stop drawing. Just look up and think. Are you bitter? Is there a person or a group of people that you are bitter towards? Is there someone that constantly comes to your mind that you think negatively about? Is there a sibling that you speak unkindly about to other people? Even if what you say is true. doesn't matter if it's true. What about someone that you're unkind to when you are around them? It's very easy to be bitter. And that's why we need to work to identify bitterness and then fight it in our hearts. Bitterness is a forgiveness issue, and as Christians, we are required to forgive, and there are no exceptions. So, if the real issue of of bitterness is a lack of forgiveness, what's the solution? Well, that's the next part in your outline. The solution for bitterness is forgiveness and communication. Forgiveness and communication. Turn to Matthew 18, verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. Again, Matthew 18, verse 15. This passage is, all, is pretty commonly known as a church discipline passage. But it also shows us how to correct someone who has sinned. Verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. While we have already showed in other passages that the Bible is very clear that we are to forgive others, here Matthew 18.15 shows us how we are to communicate with someone when a sin has been committed against us. When you are bitter towards someone, usually the last thing on your mind is communication with that person. In the situation with Tristan, my first thought is not, man, I really should talk to Tristan about it. My thought is, man, he's he's just really rude, right? The first thought on your mind is not communication. Man, I need to communicate but communication is commanded by God's word. We need to be open and honest and gracious in the way that we communicate with each other. Forgiveness and communication are the tools to fight bitterness in our hearts. Now, the next part of your outline is a little bit different. I don't have any blanks, but I still want you to kind of follow along. These are some practical tips to fighting bitterness. Now, I'm going to let you know right off the top, some of these are commands of scripture. Some of these are just practical wisdom. And if you have an issue with them, you can talk to me about them. The very first thing that you should do is examine your own heart. So we talked about Colossians 3, 12-14. I'm just going to reread that for you guys. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Right off the bat, if you're bitter, repent. Pray to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness for allowing yourself to become bitter. Then ask God's help to fight against bitterness. 
Colossians 3, 12 through 14 is very clear. Do these things. Put on these things. Bear with another, one another and forgive each other just as God forgave you. After you've prayed for God's help to fight against bitterness, because usually bitterness is not done in a day. It's very, very hard to rid out, especially if it's been there for years. It is hard, a hard sin to get out of your own heart to fight against. After you've asked for God's help, pray that you would honor the Lord in the way that you talk to the other person. We'll talk about that in just a second, but you should want to honor the Lord in the way that you resolve an issue. Always examine your own heart first and deal with it. Now, after you've examined your heart, examine the situation. Back in Matthew 18.15, if you're still there, good. Matthew 18.15, it gives us the condition, if your brother sins, right? You need to think about what happened in as unbiased a manner as you can. Ask the question, did the other person sin or not sin? Going back to the Tristan example, Tristan didn't sin against me. He just didn't hear me. After you've looked at the situation, look at either of the next questions. First, if the other person did not sin, would talking about the issue improve the relationship or cause unnecessary shame or confusion? Even if it's not a sin, talking to the other person is still important. You want to let the other person know what happened. If I had gone to Tristan, an example, and explained what I thought happened, everything would have been just fine because he would have told me, he just didn't hear me. Even if, something, even if the other person did not sin against you, it is still helpful to talk about it if that discussion would grow your relationship and not cause unnecessary shame or confusion. If someone accidentally hurts me with their words, they'd probably want to know that so that they won't, won't hurt me like that in the future. But what does that mean, the unnecessary shame or confusion part? That's a weird way to put it. Well, picture this. I'm at a friend's house, and he has the newest video game system, right? His parents have bought it for him. Now my family has said it's too expensive, and I can't get one. But now I'm bitter because my friend's parents bought him a video game system that I don't have. How dare he have that? And I realize, oh my goodness, I'm bitter. Do you think I should talk to him about that? Some of you are nodding. Now, it kind of depends on the situation, right? This isn't the Bible doesn't necessarily say, hey, if there's a video game system, you're bitter about it, you should go talk to this person. But it depends, but I probably wouldn't. I probably would not talk to him. Why? The issue is my heart. He's done nothing. In fact, the issue is that I'm bitter that he has something his parents gave him. Telling my friend that I was bitter towards him because of something his parents gave him as a gift might cause him to feel shame over a gift from his parents. Now look at the next part. If the other person did sin, is this a sin that should be overlooked? Maybe the particular sin is so minor that there's no reason to bring it up. Be careful of making a big deal out of something that was a very small issue. What you shouldn't be doing, and what I want to caution you from doing, is having a serious discussion with your siblings and parents every single time that they sin. All right, they, they got a little bit annoyed at you. All right, Mom, hey. Bible says you shouldn't be angry. And then your dad gets to know and you have the same discussion and it happens every 10 minutes. That's not what we're talking about, you guys. If it is a sin that should be overlooked, just forgive them and move on. In a similar way, it is helpful to examine the circumstances. Let's say my friend's father just passed away and I'm taking him to lunch to encourage him and I ask him where he wants to go to eat and he's emotionally overwhelmed and he snaps, I don't know, you just choose something. Do you really think that's a proper time to stop the car and spend 10 minutes correcting my friend. No, <laughs> he's going through a really tough situation, and I should take that into account and give grace. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Think the best of the other person and take their circumstances into account. Now, I do want to add a quick note here. If you have chosen not to talk to the person about the issue, regardless of whether they sin or not, you still have to forgive them in your heart. Not talking to someone about an issue is not an excuse to be unforgiving. Also, get some advice. Talk to an older, wiser Christian to make sure you're making a decision that will honor the Lord. In the past, when I've decided not to talk to someone about something like this, it often comes after I seek advice from another believer that I trust. Next on the outline, talk to the person. When you go speak to the other person, remember the goal of their correction. Look at the last bit of Matthew 18, verse 15. It's that last section. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Your goal 
is to restore the relationship between you and the other person and help them grow by helping them see and repent of their sin. The goal of talking to someone should not be to make them hurt just like they made you hurt. The goal is reconciliation, not retaliation. And that needs to be your mindset going into that discussion. Next, notice the middle part of Matthew 18, 15. Go and show him his fault where? In public? Around all their friends? No, in private. In private. When you talk to the other person, do it privately. Do not do it around your friends or a bunch of people. If you have to pull them off the side, that's okay. I've had to do that before. I've had people do that to me. But do your best to talk in an area where they won't be embarrassed around everyone they know, having a full view and a full ear to them being corrected. That's just embarrassing. Also, you can see the next part. Do it in person or over the phone or even over FaceTime. Just don't correct someone over text, you guys. Seriously, if you're going to correct someone and you can't do it in public and it can't wait, call them. While I have had good situations in the past correcting someone over text, it is very, very rare. And the result is never as good as it would have been over the, pers- over the phone or in person. The reason is because when I'm talking to you in person or over the phone, my facial expressions or the way my voice sounds all help to communicate how I'm feeling and my love for the other person. When I text, the only thing you have to go on are just my words. And it is very easy, especially when you're in an intense discussion, someone's probably defensive, someone might be getting a little bit angry, to misunderstand the way that someone is communicating. For example, let's say Tristan has corrected me over text, and I respond, I guess you're right. That could be read by Tristan as, yeah, I guess you're right, in a very repentant way, you know. Or he could read those words as, I guess you're right, as very annoyed. That's just a small part of it. Then you get into more discussions and people are sending books over text and you're trying to send back a book and then they respond and then it just gets confusing. Talking about an issue with someone over text is rarely a good idea. Don't do it. Talking about these things in person or over the phone. Just some basic practical wisdom. I've messed this up. Please don't follow that, that, that example. Next, be gentle. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Correct in gentleness. But how can I be gentle when I correct? I love Roy's Oreo approach to correction. For those of you who are seventh graders or just don't remember, Roy has said multiple times that when he corrects someone, he tries to use the idea of an Oreo. Praise, correction, praise. The top and bottom cookies are the praise, while the middle filling, filling is the correction. Start by praising their person for something that you appreciate about them. Now, guys, I'm going to say this right now. Please be genuine. <laughs> Don't just compliment their shoes or their hair. Man, that's, those are some nice shoes. Now, you, you lied to me. That's not helpful. <laughs> praise them, then correct, then praise. For example, in this situation, let's say... Garrison has yelled at me. I can go to Garrison and say, hey, I love the way that you serve the students. It's a great example. You kind of yelled, you yelled at me, and it was hurtful, and it just, you know, this is how it made me feel. But I really love you as a brother in Christ, and I've seen the way that you grow and the way that you show love to other people. That's a lot better than going, hey, Garrison, you yelled at me. I'm just staring at him, <laughs> right? The Oreo approach is so helpful to gently correct someone. And remember that when you do correct, your goal is reconciliation, that top part. Always keep that in mind. And finally, serve the other person. That's our last step. Turn to Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Starting verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, in other words, do your best, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. 
Serving others often changes our hearts. When you serve someone who has hurt you, it will help you to overcome that bitterness that you are struggling with. It will change your heart to care for the other person. This is what Christ did for you. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45. Serve the other person even, even if they don't take their, your correction. Because what happens if they don't take your correction? It doesn't matter. You still need to serve them. You still need to forgive them. That doesn't change. Now, if you are a Christian, you can fight against bitterness. God will help you as you fight to honor him with your heart. But if you are not a Christian, these tips will do nothing. You are unable to honor the Lord with your heart. And your first priority should be to understand the gospel. Instead of being bitter towards you, which God had every right to be bitter towards you, he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins. If that's not the best example of how to fight bitterness, I don't know what is. If you're not a Christian today, this is the most important part. This should be what catches your attention. This should be what catches your eye. Christ died for your sins to save you from hell. Repent of your sins and trust in his amazing gift. Guys, left unchecked, bitterness will destroy friendships, relationships, and families. I've watched it happen. As Christians, we are called to stop bitterness in its tracks in our hearts. We cannot become bitter at God or at others. If, we, if you have any questions, because bitterness is hard, if you have any questions, please feel free to talk to Roy, myself, or the other leaders. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for your word, which is so, so helpful and, uh, and a guide to us, Lord, as we fight to honor you with the way that we speak and the way that we act and the way that we think. I pray that you would help our hearts, Lord, as, in my opinion, every one of us struggles with bitterness in some way. Help us not to be bitter. Help us to understand, identify, and repent of those bitterness, of those lack of forgiveness in our hearts and try to serve others. Lord, for those of, you here, of, of us here, for those of the students here who are not believers, I pray that you would open their eyes to the gospel and understand their need for you. And for those of us here who are Christians, Lord, just help us to grow in this. This is just a hard, hard sin to root out in our hearts. Thank you again for what you've done on the cross when you sent your son to die for us. In your name we pray, amen.